0: You could say, oh, he got lucky, but I feel like for me, in each of those situations, I allowed myself to be exactly who I was, and I was willing to kind of go out just a little bit and just ask. This is the Happen to Your Career podcast with Scott Anthony Barlow. We help you stop doing work that doesn't fit you, figure out what does, and make it happen. We help you define the work that's unapologetically you, and then go get it. If you're ready to make a change, keep listening. Here's Scott. Here's Scott.
1: Here's Scott. We're going to talk about how a mere... 15-minute appointment with yourself can completely change your career and your life path. So you've got to stick around to find out how that works. And no matter how introverted you might be, and I'm, I'm an introvert, but allowing yourself to take a chance and put yourself out there can transpire a whole chain of events that can get you where you wanted to go and much beyond what you can imagine. We're also going to discuss the importance of prioritizing your tasks and goals, which are your biggest asset, time, right? Biggest asset, are you using it? Stick around to find out how to use it better so that you can do work that you love because our next guest... He's a he well he describes himself as an author and entrepreneur and specifically he's a he's a national best-selling author and publisher and he's got s- six books that he's co-authored with six bestsellers in fact with Gary Keller and the most recent of those is called The One Thing I absolutely love this book now he credits his experience in the publishing industry to his own willingness to step outside his introverted nature and go out on a limb and make personal connections with people that were in a place to take a chance on his work. It's in these situations where those personal touchstones were made that proved pivotal in leading Jay Papasan to more opportunities, whether or not it was a new job or a chance to learn a new skill. All right. Take a listen to my conversation with Jay Papasan. Jay, I am. Very excited to have you on Happen to Your Career. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here.
1: Absolutely. And you know, before we hit the record button, I was telling you a little bit about you know, some, of the, some of the pieces I was really interested in talking to you about today. And, and before we get into any of that, I am really curious how you describe what it is that you do right now, because I, I think our audience might be really interested in that.
0: You know, it's, you know, that age old question, you know, what is it you do? Um, I've started writing, like I just traveled internationally and they put, you know, what's your occupation Yeah, started writing author and entrepreneur in there. And it feels really, really good right now. Um, it's something that I think for the first two thirds of my life, um, I would have written editor or something like that in there, but it's the last third of my life I've been writing writer or author or something like that. And I've now started adding entrepreneur on the other side of that. So I, you know, to, to get more specific than that, um, I write books with Gary Keller, the guy who founded Keller and Realty. Um together we've produced um eleven books, six of them we've co-authored, and all six of those have been national bestsellers, including the most recent one, the one thing. And so I feel super lucky that I get to write for a living. And I also run our publishing company and have ownership in about four other companies as well.
1: Very cool. Hence the entrepreneur side of it, right? That's right. And <laughs> you know, if, if you,
0: t- if they didn't have Facebook back then, but when I got out of college, you know, I had like the ponytail, the John Lennon glasses. I was, you know, working part-time in Paris, I was probably the least likely candidate to have entrepreneur after their you know title that you would have ever imagined. You know, almost more like beatnik than entrepreneur.
1: I am trying to Google the ponytail pictures right now. So
0: <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, I, I, I went through my formative years in the pre-digital age. You
1: know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's perfect. We still might be able to drum up a few somehow. We'll,
0: uh... Oh, I, kn- I know they're out there. My wife will post them to her Facebook page every now and then.
1: Perfect. <laughs> now we know exactly where to look. Okay. So after we, after we, you know, spend some time digging those up, um, I really love to talk to you about what, what happened before all of that though? Cause there was, there was quite a bit that happened long before you ever met Gary Keller, right? Mm-hmm. So you, uh, you started out at the university of Memphis, right?
0: That's right. Um, I was an English major there. Um, actually majored in English, um, Pre law, I got a minor in history, and I can't remember what else. Think Latin. Um, I was the classic trying to be the jack of all trades, but I knew there was always books were always in the mix. Um, one of my part time jobs through college, when I wasn't waiting tables, I was working in a small bookstore called Davis Kid Booksellers in Austin, in Austin, in Memphis, Tennessee, rather.
1: Then what? Uh, at what point did you end up going to Paris? Then.
0: Well, when I graduated my best friend had gone overseas his junior year, a guy named Brian Justice. And he got a job over there and teaching English. And he was a student. And he just never came back. He came back for one semester to take all of his exams so he could graduate from college, and then immediately hopped on a plane and went back. And so I'd been overseas a few times. I was curious about it. um, And he kind of convinced me that I should give it a try. And I applied for a job and got a job as a translator for a British biomedical company called Smith Nephew Richards. And with a French degree, um, I had a French English degree. That was the double. And I went and became a translator of knee surgeries in Paris. Really? 20 hours a week. Yeah terrifying stuff. Cause I was translating from English to French. Yeah. yeah. And if you've ever studied a foreign language, having a degree does not mean you're fluent no, at all. <laughs> no. Um, thankfully I had a French surgeon uh, that was watching over me and making sure I wasn't giving people horrible instructions. But I watched a lot of videos of knee surgeries and translated them in exchange for the right to live in Paris for about two and a half
1: years, two and a half years in Paris. And what, what prompted you to leave then?
0: Well, I think at a certain point I knew that time was, was, it wasn't going to be a career choice. It was a rationale for my being able to live overseas, but I didn't think I wanted to do that permanently. My friend's still over there. I mean, he's a true expatriate. Yeah. Um, But I wanted to get back to the States. So I applied to graduate school, um, applied to three schools and, Got accepted to NYU, and that was great. I love New York, and so I moved there um, and started. I guess the first year I just went to graduate school, and then I got a job in publishing at a little company called New Market Press, and I was essentially a gopher, an editorial assistant. I wrote rejection letters and made photocopies a lot. <laughs> but you, it was. You, I wanted to work around books. You know, I was getting a master's in writing, um, and. Wasn't sure about being. I thought I'd wanted to be a professor, but I saw academia up close, decided I did not want any part of the politics that went into that, and got a part time, you know, got this part time job in publishing, really liked it, and then applied from that position, applying from it, you know, for a job in publishing, which is very notoriously hard to get in New York. But because I had a really crappy job in a really small house, it still made me more legit than people coming out of like Penn and Harvard, because I had some experience. And I got a job in the reference division of HarperCollins. And that was a whole journey into itself. I was there for five and a half years. And the first year I worked for an editor named Robert Kaplan. And since this is about job hunting and Career changes and you know some of those fortuitous moments. Oh yeah, um, I remember going into that interview. The guy's name was Robert Kaplan, and he was super smart. And he did all these Jewish history books. And I grew up in the Church of Christ. I mean, I knew just I knew the Old Testament, but that was about as close as I could get. You know, and I had no whole lot of touchstones with him. And I was thinking, man, I'm bombing this interview. I'm not getting any personal connections. And I looked over, and there was a a poster of an old Sherlock Holmes movie back when they had Basil, Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. If you've ever gone and watched those old black and whites. yeah. And I was addicted to Sherlock Holmes at a certain point. And I read everything that um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote. I watched all the old movies. And so I just made one little reference. I just said, Hey, I see that you've got that poster. I don't know if you're a fan. I always liked, you know, Basil Rathbone and Sherlock Holmes, but I hated <laughs> Nigel Bruce. They made, You know, the doctor looked like a clown. And that was it. Like, that was all we talked about for the next hour. And he was assumptively giving me the job. And if we go into the other moments, like, there are three or four moments in my life where I've had a pivotal milestone, where I've gotten a new opportunity to get a new job or a new skill. And it's always been some personal touchstone that kind of was the transference. Um, I worked for him for a year. He got laid off. I inherited all of his books. I worked for a guy named um, another Robert. And so I then had two senior editors books I was managing as a person who had two years in publishing. So each time it was like disaster. They're laying off people. And I got really a lot dumped on for someone who didn't know what they were doing but it was also a chance to manage books, which usually takes years and years to do in that industry.
1: Yeah. That also spells opportunity,
0: right? Yeah. It was like all these little, you know, you know, the, the, the Sherlock Holmes got my foot in the door and then, you know, I got two managers got laid off, but I got to take their responsibilities. And then Harper Collins was trying to be very commercial at that point. And they hired a guy named David Hershey. Um, I mm. ended up being a very important mentor for me. He was the deputy editor at Esquire magazine for about 10 years and had a Rolodex that you just wouldn't believe. He had published every literary author, all these amazing people, and they wanted him for his access, but he didn't know book publishing. And so an assistant editor job opened up for him and I applied. Once again, I bombed the interview, Like I really wasn't qualified for what he wanted me to do.
1: I'm sensing a trend here.
0: I know, I know. (laughs) And then I look up, and there's a picture of his daughter on the field, like at Giant Stadium or something, um, with a soccer ball. And I said, is that like, did you take your daughter to a women's national team? And he goes, yeah, we went to see them when they played in Giant Stadium. Or it's like, you know, Long Island or one of those. It was clearly a stadium. And I had been a longtime soccer fan, um, not good enough to play collegiately, but tried to walk onto the team that, you know, that sort of player. Yeah. And I just remember, you know, I looked up and I'm like, you know, they should, they should do a book about Mia Hamm. And this was in 1996 probably. And I said, you know, they should do, or 97. I said, they should do a book about Mia him. You know, the women's national team won the world cup. And I read about it next to the tire ads in the back of the sports section. And I was kind of, you know, I was indignant about it because this is way back before women's soccer even became a thing. Sure. And he had that look on his face. He goes, well, I know her agent, David Bober. Why don't we call him and see if she'd be willing to do a book with us? And so the fact that I was a soccer weenie and knew about women's soccer, like just, which is just weird, you know, that it just showed up that way. He immediately latched onto that because he's, if you, I didn't know this at the time, I couldn't do internet research because there wasn't a Google back then, right? But he's like a huge soccer fanatic. Like he skipped out of work to go watch Arsenal games in the middle of the day. And so a chance to do a commercial book about soccer was exactly like the lifeline he was looking for in his new job. And you know, I got to work with this guy who, he just did bestseller after bestseller after bestseller. And that ends up being a keystone thing for me later on when I met Gary Keller. I'm trying to piece together like how I got here. I, I met my wife in New York. We got married. We moved to Austin, Texas because we were ready for a change. And when I applied for a job here at Keller Williams, which is a little real estate company, I actually thought I was out of book publishing.
1: So that's what yeah. I was going to ask you about because I, I was really curious about how all of that transition happened, why you decided to move to Austin, Texas in the first place and why you left and, and everything. And I didn't find a, you know, we go through and we research all of our guests and everything like that, but I didn't find a ton about that. So there was like this hyphen in between (laughs) 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 because then everything else is Keller Williams, right? Yeah. So I'm curious, like what, what prompted all of that? Was it meeting your wife? Was it uh, like, how, how did, how did all that happen, Jay?
0: Well, my wife and I, like, I knew I was going to marry her, like, on the third date. She's, uh, she had lived overseas, like I had. She had uh, just this funness to her, right? I mean, we all. I don't know if you're married or not, but yeah. Once you've been through that, there is that special moment where you're like, "Oh crap! I think I just did it." Like, this is the person, you know, this is the person I was meant to be with. So we had like a year long courtship. We got engaged, and we both decided that we were kind of tired of being poor in New York. Um, publishing is a high prestige, low pay job. Yep. So got to hang out with cool people, but there was a line of people around the block that wanted my job and would be willing to be paid less for it. So there was just not much economic opportunity there and being poor in New York is a drag. And so we were talking about this. And so we both quit our jobs when we got married, put all of our stuff in storage, um, couch surfed for like three weeks and then went on a five and a half month honeymoon backpacking. Mm. And, you know, sleeping in friends, you know, houses in Europe and, you know, really low cost, just trying to stretch it out as long as we could. That's the hiatus, the dash between the two. And the whole time we were gone, we were debating where we were going to move. And I wanted to go to North Carolina because there was another publishing house there that I liked. And it was out of the city and we might have a better standard of living. And she said that she had been to this town called Austin, Texas. And she's, she grew up in Fargo, North Dakota, went to school at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and somehow bizarrely went to spring break twice in South Padre Island, Texas, because that's evidently the closest beach that you could drive to from Madison, Wisconsin, and, which boggles the mind.
1: Yeah. Interesting.
0: Yeah. And so she'd been to Austin twice and loved it. And I, I agreed that when we got back, we would just spend a weekend because I'd already been to North Carolina. And so had she. I said, let's go to Austin, and check it out. So we come here in like January and it's one of those weird warm days. So it was like 80 degrees in Austin. We're walking around barefoot in the park, some guys leaving the park and there's a pickup soccer game going on. And he goes, Hey, um, I've got half a six pack. Do y'all want it? And I'm like, sure. I'm like, this is such a nice town. (laughs) And I just, we've both fell in love with it that weekend. And we moved here without jobs. And, you know, being a little bit rash, I'm I'm not usually that spontaneous. That's definitely a product of being with my wife. But we moved here, and we both freelanced, and that was when I got the job at Keller Williams. At some point, I'm an introvert. My wife said, "You know, you've got to get out and meet people. Why don't you just get a job?" And so I applied for a job as a newsletter writer at Keller Williams, and it was just it was just supposed to be a paycheck, you know, something so I could write on the side and. Just like, you know, a poet gets a job at the post office, right? Sure. But it was intriguing. I had five job interviews to get a position as a newsletter writer. And I just remember thinking, they gave me two behavioral tests. I remember telling my wife, I thought this was like a front for the CIA. (laughs) Like, how can a company, you know, it's a newsletter position. How can they do all these interviews, you know, for such a small job? And they just put a real high premium on who they get in business with. And so I've been there for about 18 months, um, and I saw someone in the tech department, which is where I was sitting, working on what was clearly a book cover. And I thought he was freelancing, and I wasn't trying to call him out, but I said, Brad, is that a book you're working on? And he got a little defensive. He said, yeah, but didn't you hear You know, Gary's writing books now? And I was like, no. And he goes, yeah, he's, he's going to write a book this year. And... There were only about 20 or 30 employees at Keller Williams back then. This is in 2002. Um, And it was a real small office. So maybe a day or so later, I found myself in the bathroom and someone is plunging one of the stalls and out comes Gary Keller. And he makes some crack. He goes, see the chairman of the board's not too proud to fix what needs to be fixed or something like that. And, you know, I'm kind of speechless because I've only bumped into him two or three times. And I'm like, Hey, Gary, um, I hear you're writing a book. Do you remember? You know, because He met me once during the interview process. He yeah. said, do you remember that I used to work at HarperCollins Publishers? And he looked at me. He clearly didn't. And he just said, come into my office. And so we walked down the hall and he was between consulting calls and had like 15 minutes to give. And he laid out a vision for writing 13 books and just wanted my opinion on it. And he pitched a book called The Millionaire Real Estate Agent. And I told him that that would be a niche book that wouldn't sell. <laughs> and in, based on New York, it was true. I was yeah. like, I just don't think there's a big enough market. I said, how many real estate agents are there? And he goes, uh, maybe, you know, seven, 800,000. Like that, That's a pretty small market. So I don't think it's going to be huge. I don't think it'll be a bestseller. Um, and he kept kind of Pitching, you know, his ideas, and then he laid out five books. He'd gone to the bookstore with our former writing partner, a guy named Dave Jinks. Yep. And they picked out their five favorite, you know, current business books, and they wanted to steal pieces of their style to write their book. And one was good to great. One was a book called The Millionaire Next Door, which is fabulous. Um, there's a book I can't remember, just for the life of me. And then the other two books were books that I'd edited with David Hershey at HarperCollins. One was called Mia Hamm's Go for the Goal. And the other one was a guy named Bill Phillips' Body for Life. And it was just one of those moments where I was like, like the, the poster, you know, and you know, the picture of his daughter, you know, playing soccer, like there's these moments where i was like, wow, this is just teed up for me right here. And I, I just said, you know, I edited two of those books and I showed him my name inside the cover of the Mia Handbook book and the Bill Phillips book. And he pretty much right on the spot gave me the job. He just said, I want you to work with us. He called my manager, said, you want the bad news or the good news? He said, you know, I'm a bad news kind of guy. He goes, well, you just lost an employee. Um, the good news is I get him and Jay's going to come to work for me starting on Monday. And I spent about a month with him kind of teaching him what it meant to write a book. He had a big outline together and I keep pitching him with a business plan. And in about three and a half months, we wrote the millionaire real estate agent. And over my objections, um, I would spend in the mornings, I would work with him and Dave, they had their outline. And then I would have the afternoons to write 10 to 14 pages a day that I had to turn in the following morning. Yeah. Just grind, you know, grinding it out. Yeah. And then um at the end of it he said, you know, it's gonna be Gary Keller with Dave Jinks and Jay Papazan. I'm like, but I barely know anything about real estate. He was like, but you wrote the book. And I objected to it because I did think it was gonna be a small seller. That book has now sold close to a million copies. Um, it's still in print and still sells really well. It actually popped back on the bestseller list again this year. What is it, 14 years later? So that was where it all began. And it's like You could say, oh, he got lucky. But I feel like for me, in each of those situations, I allowed myself to be exactly who I was. um, And I was willing to kind of go out just a little bit and just ask. Like the the courage part for me, I've had a lot of times where you see a celebrity or someone you really admire and you just get tongue tied and you don't say the thing that you wish you'd said. And I'm really happy that I said, do you remember that I used to work in publishing? That was as close to, I could get as, I hear you're writing books. Can I work with you? Right. I was like my indirect introverted self inching my way into that conversation. And then, you know, luck showed up in the form that he was familiar with the work I'd done before, but that's how I ended up with Gary. And, you know, I've been here since 2000 and I can't imagine actually ever having a job anywhere else.
1: So that's so interesting. I, I think the thing that I'm really taking away from that and (laughs) it's uh, I've heard most of that in snippets. Yeah. In I guess either other different interviews or anything else, but it's really interesting to hear you tell the whole entire thing. But the thing that I'm really taking away is that not only what you described in terms of, Hey, when you are being yourself, but when you are willing to go out on a limb just a little bit and be courageous and, and take, (laughs) take some of those chances, then you've got the opportunity for it to pay off. Even though it might be a little hard, like, uh, we have a lot of our listeners a lot of htycers that are also self-described introverts right and i very yeah. much am too like i yeah. mean i i i work from home and i uh, i do love talking to people and interacting with people and everything like that but i'm still an introvert learned to be an extrovert and it's sometimes really difficult if uh, if you have that type of personality to be willing to take those chances but the reality is, none of that would have happened strung together over a period of what was that, twenty years or so? 20, yeah, twenty-two years ish, someplace in there.
0: To now, yeah, yeah. So. To
1: now, uh, none none of those opportunities would have would have showed up. Although, you know what, I will say, <laughs> with the with the soccer and the and the um, and the poster and everything like that, man, it is a lot easier to find that stuff out in advance with Google. You didn't have to chance it showing up to an office. <laughs> <laughs> now Wait, there's no excuse really
0: i know i know like i think that i think 85 of people google each other before a first date you know it is yeah, yeah. so going out there and and, and cyber stalking someone before you meet them especially if it's an opportunity it makes sense
1: see i probably should have known that the ponytail pictures were out there before we even started talking
0: <laughs> but like i said you were at a disadvantage you know like i I managed to graduate from college, you know, a decade before Facebook appeared.
1: I was just down in kind of reaching back to, uh, I guess 17 sentences ago here, but I was just down in Austin for the, my first time ever, maybe five weeks ago. Sometimes. Oh, cool! I was, I was really impressed. I love the town. I was, uh, uh, there was also soccer going on. Nobody offered me a six pack though. So it was a little bit. disappointed. It, it
0: was like half a six pack. Like they were wrapping up and. I mean, for all I knew, they were going back to work, you know, they're like, they're just like, oh, we're going to, you know, toss these beers. Do you want them? I just remember, you know, having a cold Corona, you know, I was thinking this has just now made this moment like feel like fate. You know? Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Um, Austin's really kind of hot right now. I think something like 50 people move here every day. Wow. Um, the unemployment rate is really low and, you know, like three and a half percent. And it's just got a good energy. It's got a good energy for creatives. Um, the traffic, you know, for locals, it's horrible. Oh, it's but it like, horrific. Yeah, but our, our mutual friend Jeff moved here from San Diego and he yeah. just cackles whenever somebody says that. He goes, you don't know what traffic is. <laughs> so it's all relative. Um, it's gotten worse. That is definitive statement from when I've gotten here. But um, it is a good place. I feel, I feel like it's a great place for a writer. And, you know, being an introvert, there's a good community of people here that you can connect with that are creatives. And I don't know what it is about creatives. A lot of them do tend to be on that introvert half of the scale with it a little is, outgoing.
1: Yeah, it is kind of interesting. I have observed that same thing myself. I haven't seen necessarily any research on it to understand exactly why or why that tendency is there. But yeah,
0: I think, I think, you know, if you're going to like for a writer, if you're going to spend a lot of time in front of the keyboard you know if you have a strong need to go associate with people that works against that. It really does. So, you know, it's it's just like you're not going to find tons and tons and tons of introverts in the sales force, right? Because if I had to dial a phone all day, that would be a struggle for me. I could do it if I had to. Just like a, you know, I've, I've known extroverts who were good writers. But I'm sure they have to find cheats and tricks to get over their natural behavioral style because the core activity requires some solitude, and I do think that creativity is reading it's researching it's connecting dots. I love brainstorming with people, but a lot of that happens in, in you know privately, so that would be my very unscientific theory about why that might be
1: I suspect you're onto something, but I, I before time gets too much away from us here, I really wanted to delve into the one thing yeah, partially because I had no joke I had about twenty. Yeah, probably close to twenty of my friends that at different points in time over the last, I don't know, say six months or so, six eight months or so, that are like, hey, have you read the book, The One Thing? And you know, the first maybe ten times or so, I just added it to my list. I've got this big long list in Evernote of books that I, you know, people have told me <laughs> I should read, and and the One Thing was way at the bottom, and. Uh, Maybe about the, I don't know, 15th or 17th time, I was like, okay, maybe, maybe I should actually pay attention to this. And then actually, Jeff called me up at at one point. Um, geez, it's probably been, probably, probably been about four or five months ago, give or take. It's like, hey, so have you still not read the one thing? You have to read this. So I finally, finally read it. And to be honest with you, part of the part of what held me back was I'm like, well, the whole message of the book is in the title. So like, why am I going to read the book? And and that's part of what I thought. And that was part of what was holding me back. And then I read it and I'm like, wow, this is, this is great. Okay. I see what all these people are talking about. So I, I would love it if you could kind of introduce really what the one thing is and what is kind of the core message behind it. And um, th- then I've got a ton of questions for you.
0: Sure. Sure. So the big idea is, I mean, it's it's implicit in the title, right? How can you do less and achieve more? And I think the reason it's taken off is Gary and I conceptually both agree with it, but we're also really practical people. And I know that he and I have made kind of a commitment to each other that as much as sometimes we enjoy reading books that change your paradigm, like how you view things that our scorecard needs to be about how we change people's behavior after they change the way they think. And so we really wanted to bring practical application to the idea. So it's, a, it's a, a simple approach to allowing yourself to say no to more of the things that we need to say no to, and we know that we need to say no to, and yes, in a bigger way to the very few things that actually really matter to us. And what I love about it, it's ostensibly a business book. But it has in the in the five years we spent researching it, and in the three years now that I've spent giving speeches and coaching and developing training around it, and you know just living the book, that's almost eight years of my life that I've spent with this in my head. It has transformed not just like my business life um, and amplified things that we were doing, but it's had a, a direct impact in my health and my marriage because it's a it's a pretty simple formula. You know, you identify the true priority in whatever area it is you're trying to address. And in our experience, most people kind of know what the priority is and they feel guilty for not doing it. You know, everybody says, I want someone to tell me, and it's just they don't trust their answer. And so, you know, you ask the question, what's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything will be easier or necessary. It's what's the most leveraged thing I can do to improve this thing. And then you try to make that thing a habit through a process we call time blocking, which is just essentially making regular appointments with yourself to do it. You know, I have a standing appointment three days a week at five 30 in the morning to work out with my wife. And we have a trainer who shows up and it sucks to do it that early, but that's when we knew we could consistently do it in our life. And it's just a habit. Like I now wake up sadly at five 30 on the days I don't work out because my body's been trained to do that. And so it's it's a simple approach to identifying it and then kind of putting it into your routine in a way that's repeatable so that you can kind of make the most important things habitual, which is a great gift. So that that would be my three-minute synopsis of the big idea of the book.
1: Perfect. And one of the things I love about it, you know, as I read through it and I was thinking about its application for um, HTICers, our, our students and customers and listeners and everything like that, is it it really seems like a lot of what we do as a company is help people prioritize <laughs> prioritize the things that are important to them much, much, much higher in their life. And this just fits so well with that. And um one of the one of the things I that, that I was super curious about is You know, as, as you, people have read the book and as you talk to them, what, what are some of the things that they throw up as objections or why I can't do this? I'm that, uh, I don't know if that's going to be helpful here, but I just was super curious about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's two, like when we actually even proposed the book, we had, um, we went to book expo in New York with our publisher. Um, and you know, that's a whole story into itself. I I spent three years trying to find him because he only does one book a year. And I thought, who better to write a book? Help us do a book called The One Thing, right? Because it'll be this <laughs> one thing for a whole year. Yeah. And I remember we were pitching it, and all these people in New York were like, "What do you mean one thing? There's never just one thing, right?" And the the number one objection is it's ridiculous to think that anybody gets to do just one thing. And and we make a concession to that right off the bat. the The core metaphor in the book is to to line up your dominoes, like when you were a kid, and you'd line them up so that if you knocked over one, they'd all fall down. And the idea is, we all have a lot of stuff on our to-do list. But if you can take just a moment to prioritize it, to select the handful of things that you should be doing from all the things that you could be doing, and then take one additional step of, if I can only do one of these things right now, today, what's the most important one? And start there. So you know, that's actually a process I try to get people to do. Just take your to-do list in the morning isolate, circle, star, whatever, just a handful that really matter? So just what are the ones that are actually important? And then what's the number one? If I only got one thing done today, what's that one? And if I could do two things, what would be number two? And most people take like a two-page to-do list and convert it to three or four items in priority. And if they start the day knocking them out, it just gives them a great sense of freedom. Um, I don't know about you. I I tend to, when I fail to do that, and I'm stressed out. I start crossing stuff off. That's the fastest stuff to cross off instead of the stuff that's most important. And that's kind of the trap we get into. We're trying to manage the list instead of the priorities.
1: I am. Um, I was actually uh, at the same time as I was listening. I was trying to pop up. I've got a whole bunch of questions on this recently that people have emailed me or sent in as a response to surveys and things like that. But rather than doing that, I'll kind of summarize the the general synopsis. Which is that, hey, look, I am, I want to make a career change. Or I got a whole bunch of emails on on starting yeah. businesses too on the side, because that's something that I did. And I always get questions about, hey, how on earth did you find the time to do that? Like all of all of those types of things. So I'm curious, what advice would you offer people that are trying mm-hmm. to create. They feel like they're trying to create more time in their life. I don't know if that's necessarily accurate, but that's what people feel like they want, and that's generally the questions that they're asking: like, how do I, how do I get the time to do this? You know,
0: I love the question, and it's got to do like if I'd continued answering the question you asked me, you know, the two things that people fear: they can't say no to things, Mm -hmm. right? The inability to say no undoes their one thing, and fear of chaos. Those are the top two. If you're task oriented, addressing one thing and leaving everything else undone kind of drives you crazy because stuff gets messy. Yeah, And if you're people-oriented, you say yes too much, and that will mess you up. But if people spent, like if I if I followed one of these people who says I don't have enough time around you know, the day and followed them for a week and actually documented how they spent their time, I think we have more time than we would guess. And it gets eaten up doing silly things, you know, like checking emails and checking social media, maybe watching Netflix at night. And you talk to the people who successfully make a really great career change, right? They really go out. They, they prepare themselves. They figure out where they want to go for their career change. They research the best companies to go for. They research who they talk to. Like there's, there could be a lot of time invested in that search and they just say no to the stuff. So for a period of time, they don't get to watch TV. They're going to fall behind on Facebook They might be not being able to stay up as late as they want because they're getting up an hour before work. And honestly, that same approach is how entrepreneurs do stuff on the side. When I interviewed, if I interviewed a hundred entrepreneurs, and I know I've done five or six times that, and you ask them about their startup period, it's about 60-40. 60% of them would get up earlier in the day, right? And they would block an hour or two hours to make headway on this new business, whatever they were starting, before they even got to work. And 40% would stay up later, right? They would stay up really late in the middle of the night after the kids were asleep, so they could hack it out. Because ethically, if you're being paid to do another job, it is a little wrong to be doing that while you're on that job. So I can't recommend that course, and the lunch break is weird too, but yeah. they do it on the bookends. They do it in the morning or in, in the evening. And our research would tell you the better path is to start getting up earlier when you have your willpower, when there's fewer distractions, when you have more energy and you can actually make more headway either on a job search or building your next business um, before the rest of the world's awake. I mean, I the number one takeaway from probably interviewing, I want to say... Three hundred millionaires um, over the course of the last few years, just on this process, yeah. Is that their goal is to have a great day before noon? And a lot of people have a great day before eight a.m.
1: And I, it has th- to be for me. Like i I have to. I don't know. I have. To, I get up at uh, between four and four thirty, and that's leftover from making this change before i was doing this company full time but there you go at this point like i i don't feel good if i haven't gotten if i haven't gotten stuff done before um, 8 or 9 a.m.
0: were you a morning person before you had to do that
1: you know i my very first business about 15 years ago 10 years ago i guess whatever it's been um that got me getting up in the mornings the first time around but i reverted to nights on either side of that so I, I, I've, be, I've learned to love the mornings, I guess.
0: I, I love that statement because the number one excuse people give me then is they say, I'm not a morning person. And I wasn't either. I mean, I'm a writer. I love to watch movies. I like to stay up late at night. Yeah. I'm, I'm still guilty of it occasionally. yeah um, It's the only time I actually get to watch TV. In my own house, like because I've got kids that are 10 and 12. I can't watch Walking Dead while they're awake. I'm sorry. Exactly. And I can't watch Game of Thrones, because you know, my wife is now into it, but for years she wouldn't watch it with me. So I had to wait till they were all asleep and you know be sleep deprived. But having children forced me to become a morning person. And my son Gus, which is our first one, he would generally wake up around 5:30. And my wife, who was getting up in the middle of the night for the feeding, my job was the morning feeding. It was also a precious time for me to just be up and rocking him. You know, it's actually a good, good deal. And, you know, I just got sleep trained by my own son for about a year. And instead of reverting back, I kind of stuck with it. And we started working out. That's when all those things started happening. And, you know, reading the paper or reading a book in the morning, and you start getting these morning rituals, and then you start looking forward to your mornings. And my writing partner would say, the reason you're not getting up in the morning, or the reason you don't go to bed is you don't have a good enough reason to get up in the morning. But the moment you do, you'll find a reason to go to bed.
1: Mm, I like that. I, like I that
0: do quite too. A bit. That's why I, I butchered it at first, but I recover.
1: <laughs> Perfect. So I have, I've got one more question. How can people use time blocking? To be able to make this, this type of transition, whether they are starting their own business or whether they're trying to find extra time in order to, as, as they put it, find extra time, um, in order to make a, make a career change, what are, what are some of the ways that they can actually apply that? Speaking of the application side of it, right?
0: Sure. So let's just say, let's take the to-do list example I gave you. It's a thing we call extreme Pareto in the book. Huh? Mm-hmm. You know, Taking the Pareto's principle, what's the 20% of this that gives me my 80% of my results? Yeah. Doing that sort of analysis. So whether you are writing a list of things for your career search, or you're writing a list of things that you needed to accomplish in order to launch your new business, start with a list, and then go through that same prioritization. You know, of all these things, you know, if I could only get one, Done? What would be the most important thing to get done this week or this month? I don't know what the time frame is for people today. Number it, right? The number one should be the number one priority, the thing that makes everything else possible. A lot of times, somewhere in those top three is something that they'll have to do again and again and again. You know, for job hunting, they may have to start prospecting. They may have to write, you know, cold letters or cold calls to people, start networking with people, right? some sort of activity. Most businesses also have a core activity. Maybe you're building the business model. Maybe you're reaching out to potential clients. And if you can identify that core activity, that's a bonus in this process. And then you just look at your calendar. Start with that. I think the minimum amount of time is 15 minutes. Like No matter how crazy you are, if you've got four kids and a single parent, you can still find 15 minutes. I mean, I know this because I've talked to people who've done it, but ideally you could find an hour and I would look at your calendar on a weekly basis and say, where can I find an hour of time that I can completely control for myself? It's a time that it's my boss can't step in. It's unlikely that my wife or kids will step in. And this almost always leads you to late at night or early in the morning, right? Cause at work, you don't have that control unless you're already the boss. Yeah. But even then, your employees might have the right to step in. So it's going to tend to be early. And that's where I'm going to tell people to look, even if they have to start setting their alarm clock an hour early. And then I want them to make an appointment with themselves. And that appointment is simply to either start tackling that list or to do that activity, that core activity that just needs to be done every day and start doing it every day. And what they'll find, in my experience, is The moment they feel like they've gotten control over that little sliver of time, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 60 minutes, they immediately get a halo effect in the rest of their life. Taking firmly control of a tiny block of time, those little appointments, gives you a general sense of control over your own time, which is, frankly, your most precious asset. It's the only thing that's not renewable, right? If if you don't start this business or make this career change this year, it's not like you magically get to add a year to the end of your life to do it later. You just might not get to do it. So this asset that we all have the same amount of time, right, every day, just adding that hour in the beginning of your day, you still can do everything else that you wanted to do later, but you're starting with that really core task. We've seen people like just report that like, they start eating better they start you know, doing different things better. They'll exercise. They have a better relationship with their spouse. There's like a halo effect just from that simple activity. So I would tell people to go all in, make a stand around that period of time, 15 minutes to an hour, and start knocking out that list of priorities so they can make the best possible career change or as soon as humanly possible, launch that new business venture for themselves because as much time as we spend at work, we need to love what we do. man. I mean, that's just too, that's too precious. That's too important.
1: That is fantastic. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to detail that out. And I, I, I know uh, Jeff had actually sent me over a, uh, he, he recommended that you guys have a, have an online training as well. That
0: do. And, and, and I'm happy to mention that. I mean, we have a course we just launched called time blocking mastery. Yeah. And it's at timeblockingmastery.com if people want to check it out. We took the first 100 people through that. And even though i had been studying this for five years and teaching it for, you know, three years, it was such a great experience for me to walk people through 10 weeks of, you know, they have to identify their one thing, find their time block. And the whole point of the course, you know, those two activities take a little bit of work, but the real trial like the first two weeks people are doing it, it's new, it's novel, it's exciting, right? And they're like, I'm going to start doing my second thing now. And we're like, stop, 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 wait, you haven't even gotten to that part. <laughs> and then like right between like weeks four through six, people just like, "Ah, oh, life happened. You know, someone got sick or they got sick or there was a death in the family. And they suddenly had a challenge to their new conviction. And then the people, and a lot of them did, who got through that, just had this amazing sense of power on the other side, so it, it was really extraordinary experience for me to build the course with them, those founding members, and then even the people who stumbled and fell. Like I would say, ninety percent of them on the last call. We had hundred people on the last call. I think we had ninety-one pe- people on the call, which is an extraordinarily low dropout rate. A lot of people had just started over. Said, "I'm back on week two. I'm going to complete the whole course, but I'm going to start over because I got more clarity." by doing it for eight weeks, I figured out what I really should be doing. And now they have even more confidence. So I totally, I, that, that course I believe is life-changing, but I'm just giving you the recipe. So nobody has to pay to do it, but it's out there if they want the extra accountability.
1: Well, and I watched a webinar that kind of starts to detail some of that stuff out too, that, uh, that you guys have available. So that's something that I would recommend that you could go check out too, if you want a taste of what, uh, what Jay is talking about and we can post links to that and the one thing and well, everything else, probably including if we're up to the challenge of finding the ponytail picks, then probably those too. <laughs> so all that and more, you can find those at happened your career.com click on podcast and it'll be right there for you. But Jay, thank you so very much for, for taking the time and making the time, um, If people want to find out more, where else can, where else can they go? Um,
0: I'd go to the one com, and it's the, the number one thing.com. It's got everything about the book. There's tons of free resources. Um, We have a, my favorite one, probably the most downloaded thing on our site is a 66 day challenge calendar Mm. where um, in our research, it takes an average of 66 days to form a new habit. So people can just download the calendar print it on their wall and just put an X across every day that they do, whatever that thing is. And it's amazing how such a simple little act can help them. So there's great resources and they're free all on the site.
1: Very cool. Thank you. I sure appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Scott. It's been fun talking to you.
1: Most of our episodes on Happy to Your Career often showcase stories of people that have identified and found and taking the steps to get to work that they are absolutely enamored with, that matches their strengths, and is really what they want in their lives. And if that's something that you're ready to begin taking steps towards, that is awesome. You can actually get on the phone with us and and our team, and we can have a conversation to find the very best way that we can help. It's super informal, and we try to understand what your goals are, where you want to go, and what specifically you need our help with. And then we figure out the very best type of help for you, whatever that looks like, and sometimes even customize that type of help, and then we make it happen. A really easy way to schedule a conversation with our team is just go to scheduleaconversation.com that's scheduleaconversation.com and find a time that works best for you. We'll ask you a few questions uh, as well, and uh, then we'll get you on the phone and figure out how we can get you going to work that you really want to be doing, that fits your strengths, that you love and you're enamored with. Hey, can't wait to hear from you.